This morning, Pastor John is going to be preaching from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're talking in these weeks about preparing to suffer for and with Christ. And the reason for these four messages on preparing to suffer is not just because one pastor has a premonition that the days are evil, but far more importantly because the Bible teaches us that we are appointed for this and that it is not strange and that it is to be expected for example, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, as Paul came back visiting the churches that he had just planted, he told every one of them, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom. This was a standard teaching for all the Christians in the churches that he had just planted. Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus said in John 15:20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And... Peter, in his letter, said, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal coming upon you as though something strange were happening to you. It isn't strange when those things happen to believers. It is normal. It's to be expected. Or, Paul again, 
Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I take it to be a biblical truth that the more earnest we are about fulfilling our mission, reaching unreached peoples, exposing the darkness, loosing the bonds of Satan and of sin, the more earnest and zealous we are in being the church, being Christ to this world, the more we will suffer like he did. And therefore, I believe it is a shepherd-like thing to do to help us all get ready for it. And the way to get ready for it is to look at texts that teach how to get ready for it by showing purposes and designs in it. The purpose or the design last week was the moral or the spiritual design of of suffering. Namely, that our reliances upon the world are going to be stripped away or the chaff in the gold is going to be consumed when the gold is put through the fire or the tree as it's bent in the wind of adversity is going to straighten and be stronger for its having bent and the roots are going to go deeper. The the moral spiritual effect when we fall upon God because there's nobody else to fall upon is that we hope in Him more fully and we hope in the world less. And that's a good thing. That's the most important thing in the universe to hope more in God. Now today's focus, another design or another purpose for suffering is the The intimacy factor. That's what I'll call it. The intimacy factor. Namely, that when you go through suffering with Christ, you come out on the other side, whether on this earth or in heaven, more united, more intimate, more warm, more deep, more authentic, more personal, more real with Christ than any prosperity could ever do in your life. It's the intimacy factor. You get to know him better when you suffer with him. Now, that's that's a biblical fact. It's also an experiential fact. The people who have written most deeply about suffering, most tenderly, most warmly, most caringly, most helpfully, most profoundly, most honestly, are people who have been through it. For example, uh, here's a book I don't hesitate to recommend by Jerry Bridges. He works for navigators called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Now, this is a profound and winsome and tender and pastoral and caring and honest and biblical treatment of suffering in the Christian life. And it's not surprising, therefore, when you open it up and you read, for example, that when he was 14 years old, he heard a noise coming from his mother's room next door. She was as healthy as could be. And he ran over and saw her take her last breath as a 14-year-old. An indelible stamp on his life. Totally unexpected. He indirectly alludes to some physical conditions that he has. I I met him and had lunch with him a few years ago when he was here at a conference, and I didn't see anything like this, but he he said he has some physical conditions that keep him from playing sports that most men play, and it's been an identity 
crisis in his life, sort of. And then his wife died of cancer here about three years ago. So here's a man who serves the Lord faithfully, has a theology that I think is beautifully biblical, and it has not spared him in the least all his life long. And that's why he writes the way he writes. Well, here's another one. Um, this is an old one by Horatius Bonar. used to be called, when he first published it, The Night of Weeping, from that text about weeping lasts for a night, joy comes with the morning. The new title they've given it is When God's Children Suffer. And this is a beautiful book, too. And in it, he says that his purpose is to minister to the saints, to seek to bear their burdens, to bind up their wounds, to dry up at least some of their many tears. It's a tender book, a deep and wise book. Now, why is that? Same reason. Listen, I'll I'll let him describe his own approach to his own suffering. He says... It is written by one who is seeking himself to profit by trial and trembles lest that trial should pass by as the wind over the rock, leaving it as hard as ever. By one who would in every sorrow draw near to God that he may know him more and who is not unwilling to confess that as yet he knows but little. And so the point of alluding to Bridges and Bonar is that the people who are able to go deep with God and minister that depth and that intimacy to others are people who have gone deep through suffering with God. God draws near to people in a very special way in suffering. I believe, I really believe this, there is a unique and special revelation of God preserved for those who suffer for him. Now, the reason I believe that is because of illustrations of it in the Bible. For example, you know Job. Job suffers for months and months with those horrible uh, boils and loses his whole family except for his wife. And then at the end of the book, this is what he testifies. I had heard of thee, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Now, before Job suffered, he was a good man. He was a righteous and upright man, none better, God said, on the, on the earth. And yet, what Job knew and experienced of God through prosperity in uprightness, compared to what he knew through suffering as hearing about God compared to seeing God. There, there are revelations of and experiences with God and intimacies to be enjoyed. We won't know in prosperity. And we will find in the day of adversity. Here's another illustration. You, you know, Stephen, the great deacon, servant, evangelist in the early church whose wisdom couldn't be resisted and so they killed him. He's preaching this great sermon in in Acts 7, and the enemies are listening to him, and they're getting more and more angry, and at the end, they're grinding their teeth against him. And just before they drag him out and kill him with big stones, something happens. Luke describes it like this. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. God moved in on him that crucial moment when he needed it like he never needed it before, God moved in. 
He was full of the Holy Spirit and he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There are special appointed revelations and blessings of intimacy for those who suffer for Christ. One other illustration. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Some of you may remember five or six years ago, I preached a sermon called The Spirit Will Help You Die. This was the text. And I argued then, and I believe it today, that though most of us, as we look to the future at the suffering that is coming, we shrink from it saying, how could I ever endure what I read in this book? That person endured. How could I ever stand that torture? How could I ever go through that disease? How could I ever endure that loss of child or family? And we shrink back. But this is our confidence. There is a spirit of glory and a spirit of God that rests in the needed moment upon those who suffer in Christ's name and for his glory and in reliance upon him. And you don't have to have the strength for it. Now, all of that, just to say there's an intimacy factor in this issue of suffering. When the suffering comes, there is an appointment, a design, and a purpose, which is not just the purpose of strengthening hope, but the purpose of making our relationship to Jesus more intimate, less cool, less distant, less mechanical, less formal, and more real and authentic and warm and deep, just as real as the person you know best and more. Now let's go to our text and let me show you three things. The first thing is how Paul prepared to suffer in this text in Philippians 3. The second is the actual experience of loss and suffering in his obedience to Christ. And the third is why he endured it all. Why was he willing to accept so much loss and so much suffering? And the answer, of course, is, he says, to gain Christ and to know him. Now, we're going to spend 90% of the rest of this message on point one and a very brief closing comment on the last two. So don't panic as you see the clock draw near at the end of point one. Start with verses five and six. In these two verses, he lists the distinctives of his pre-Christian life that gave him meaning and significance and worth and joy and a reason for being. And it was a great thing for Paul. He gives his pedigrees, a thoroughbred child of Abraham, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, an Israelite. But the key is at the end of verse 5 and then verse 6, three things that drove his life. One, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. Two, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Three, 
As to righteousness, which is in the law, as he understood it, he was found blameless in his own eyes. Now, that's an amazing life. Paul had a lot going for him before his conversion. He's in the upper echelons of the group of people called Pharisees that everybody looked up to as the esteemed law keepers. They had them nailed down. So he, was, he had a place in the guild that everybody admired. And I'll tell you, we love to be admired. So there's a lot of strokes for these folks here. Second, not only is he belonging to this and getting all of that esteem by belonging to them, he is excelling among them. He is zealous, Galatians says, beyond all of his contemporaries. And it's manifest in his zeal to squash the church, which was the arch enemy of Phariseeism. The church of Jesus Christ living by grace was, in Paul's mind, a tremendous threat to his whole life in Phariseeism. So he was zealous against the church and persecuting it. And third, he took all these laws that the Pharisees were able to work out in detail and he devoted himself with all his energy to keeping them so that he could stand up on a corner and say, I am not like this publican. I keep the Sabbath. I tithe mint, dill, and cumin. I've never committed adultery. And the list. And there's a tremendous sense of moral pride that feels so good when you've got your list and you come to the end of the day and you kept it. Ah, so he's in the guild, he's the best in the guild, and he's got a clear conscience with a moral pride. And he is happy. He's a happy man. He said even after his conversion that his conscience was clear. And then he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. The Son of God, the Lord of the universe, Christ crucified. He meets him. He's alive. And Jesus tells him in Acts 9.16 how much he is going to have to suffer if he follows him. He tells him. He doesn't, he doesn't keep it behind the back as though that's stage two in discipleship. Do that in evangelism. He just tells him right up front that you've got to suffer. All of this. And Paul immediately prepares himself to suffer. Now, how does he do it? Verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, he's referring back to verses 5 and 6. Those things that were gained to me. My standing in the upper echelons of Judaism with all that respect. My personal excelling in zeal that made even my peers proud of me. My moral sufficiency and pride that brought me to the end of the day with a sense of virtue. I counted all as loss. I turned my values upside down. My life is inverted. It's inside out. That's the way Paul prepares to suffer. Picture it this way. Paul's life is a, a ledger before he's converted. It's a ledger and there's a gain column 
and there's a loss column. And this gain column is long in Paul's life, and this loss column is very short. And the gain column has in it all of his belonging to the guild and his zeal and his esteem among them and his law-keeping and his moral pride and all of his pedigree. And it is long and it is strong and it gives meaning to his life and makes him happy, energetic, willing to get up in the morning, glad to go to bed at night. It's good in his eyes. And in this column, there's only one thing. The possibility that this Jesus movement might get out of hand and this Christ prove true. That'd be lost. And what he says here is that when he was converted, what happened was that the risen Christ put a red pencil in his hand and said, Write. And Paul took the red pencil, and on this long gain column, he put L-O-S-S, or Zeta, Eta, Mu, Iota, Alpha. It's loss. And over here, on this horrible possibility for a Pharisee, that this, this Jesus movement might be the movement of world history, might be the kingdom of God, he might be the king of the universe, he puts... And he's, he's just turned upside down. Is that what it meant for you to become a Christian? It should. Now, that's not where he stops. He moves on. Not only do you have this list of distinctives that he counts as lost. Look at verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So he, be, he begins by counting his most precious accomplishments, outlined in verses 5 and 6, as loss. But now, as he grows and as he reflects on life and the meaning of the universe and everything in the world, he says, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing. There's the intimacy factor. Knowing, getting close to, going deep with Jesus, my Lord. Now, lest any of you say, oh, well, that's fine for an apostle to do. Apostles ought to do that, but not everybody. That's kind of an upper-level Christianity. Look at verse 17. I just point this out to, to, to put you back on the hook. Brethren, Join in following my example. With his apostolic authority, he is saying, look, I haven't told you this story about my life as a biographical curiosity. <laughs> this is you, me, and everybody who's met the living Christ and seen him for who he is and assessed the world properly. All Paul is doing here, by the way, is articulating and experiencing what Jesus said we would experience as we get to know him. You know a parable? Can anybody think of a parable um, that sounds like what Paul is saying here? Here's one. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and from joy over it, he goes and he sells 
everything he has to buy that field. Now that's all Paul is saying. The kingdom of God is the revelation of Jesus Christ reigning unto salvation in the life of his people. And when your eyes are open to the value of that kingdom, the joy level rises so high as the value of that kingdom rises in your eyes by God's sovereign revealing work that you look around and you say, I will sell anything to have that. That's all Paul is saying. I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing the king. Being in the kingdom. Being intimate with the king. That's what Jesus taught. Or another place Jesus said in Luke 14, 33. No one can be my disciple who does not renounce all that he has. The word renounce means say goodbye to. Nobody can be my disciple who does not look at all of his relationships... All of his money, all of his house, all of his job, all of his pleasures, all of his success, and say, goodbye. Now, if you're like me, you, you are asking, well, come on now. Practically, what do you mean? I'm going to work in the morning. I will pay my light bill with money. I will eat food this afternoon. What, what, what do you mean? What, what is this everything is lost business and renounce everything and sell everything? What, what is it practically? Let me boil it down into four statements. This is what I think it means to become a Christian and to count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Number one, it means that whenever I am called upon to choose between anything, good or bad, and Christ, I choose Christ. That's the first thing it means. Anytime they become in conflict, anytime you must choose, you choose Christ. Number two, it means that I will deal with the things of the world in ways I will handle the world. Money, home, car. Clothes, food, vacations, television. I will handle everything in the world. I will handle it in such a way that I am drawn closer to Christ and not away from Him. That's number two. If anything in the world can be a means to your drawing near to Jesus, use it. If in the use of it, you find your heart shriveling, you find your mind drifting, you find yourself less given to prayer, less given to meditation, less given to sacrifice, less given to obedience, strike it. It is loss. Number three, it means that I will always deal with the world, everything in the world, good and evil, in a way that shows that it is not my God. It is not my treasure. It is not my satisfaction. I will find a way to handle food so that it is known by devil and the world that it is not my God. I will find a way to handle recreation and exercise so that it is known that it is not my God. It is not 
my satisfaction in this world. I will find a way to handle money and use money so that it will be manifest that Jesus is my king, my treasure, my worth, my joy, not this money. And right down the line, that's the third way that you experience the loss of the world. It it comes under Christ and it is used to magnify his worth, not its worth, or it's gone out of your life. Number four, it means that if I lose any or all things, good or bad, out of my life, I do not lose my joy because I have not lost Christ. If I lose any or all worldly things, I do not lose my joy, I do not lose my hope, I do not lose my treasure, I do not lose my meaning, I do not lose my significance, I do not lose my life, because Christ is all. That's the meaning of I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. What a freedom. What a radically different kind of people in the world. Now, let's just stop and get our bearings here. I said I spent almost all my time on point one, and this is the end of point one. And I'm almost finished. Point one has been, how did Paul prepare to suffer? Answer, he turned his values upside down. Christ became all, and the world, good and bad, and everything in it became loss. In the sense that I just tried to explain. Now, the last two questions I just answer with a few sentences. What about his actual suffering? Is there a reference to that here? Or is it just the counting, the reckoning? Did he lose anything? Or did he just reckon it lost? Verse 8, again. For whom, that is, for Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, there it is. I have suffered the loss of all things. And in losing them, I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I could resent it and murmur and bellyache and gripe and be resentful and angry and bitter toward God, but then I would not gain Christ. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, we're going to talk next week a lot about what Paul actually lost But suffice it to say this morning that once he began to live out his apostolic life in obedience to Jesus, he lost so many normal and ordinary benefits and comforts of this life that he just lifted his hands and said, I have lost everything. I'm counted as the off-scouring of the world, as the refuse of the world. It's gone. He was prepared by his reversal of values, and then he was tested in the loss of all things. Finally, his life. Finally, number three, why did he do it? Why should you do it this morning? If you're sitting there saying, well, I just, um, I can't see my way clear to writing loss over my children. I can't see my way clear to writing loss over my health or my job or my bank account, or my wife. Can't do it. Then you need to really seriously ask, how could Paul do it? He wasn't, he was human. And the answer is given about seven or eight times. 
in these verses, and I'm just going to close by walking through and saying it again and again. The answer is that God would come into this room right now and into your life and reveal to you Jesus Christ. You see, I, I could, you know, lift my voice and, and say, do it, you know, count it as loss. Can it appeal to your willpower? And you might even pull that off for a while, but it won't work long run. Long run, the only thing that will work is if Jesus becomes so glorious, so beautiful, so attractive, so irresistibly compelling that you can say freely, freely, I count my children as loss. I count Noel, my most precious on the earth, as loss. I count my tent that I live in, my body, as loss because of the surpassing. There's something greater than my body. There's something greater than Noel. There's something greater than Karsten and Benjamin and Abraham and Barnabas. There's something greater than ministry in this church. And he is Christ. And he will mediate himself to me. When anything goes, he will be there. Let me just close by reading them with you. You follow along and let the word of God reveal Christ to you. Verse 7. I counted them as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Secondly, verse 8, first part. I count all things to be loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Thirdly, middle of verse 8. For Him, for Him, I have suffered the loss of all things. Fourth, end of verse 8. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Fifth, verse 9. And that I may be found in Him, where God's righteousness, not mine, is. Verse 10, still giving the reason for his aim in accepting the loss. That I may know him. And then four specifics in this practical outworking of intimacy with Christ. To know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, conform to his death, that I might attain the resurrection from the dead and be with him forever and ever. So what sustains Paul, what enabled him to write loss across the most precious things in his life, was the revelation of Jesus Christ as superior, more valuable than anything. That's what has to happen in our lives. We must pray for each other that our eyes would be open to see the infinite value of Jesus. Two times he calls the gaining of Christ the knowing of Christ. Verse 8, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And then in verse 10, that I may know him. This is the intimacy factor. So I close with this question. Do you want to know Christ this morning? More intimately, more authentically, more warmly, more personally than the closest friend or the closest relative in your life? Do you want to know him that intimately, that closely? Commune with him, talk to him, experience him, walk with him, deal with him in a way that is more real than anything you've ever experienced. If so, then I believe the Lord will enable you to write loss across the rest of the world and you will be ready to suffer. 
If you say no, you're not ready to suffer, and you will be taken off guard, it will surprise you, and you will rebel and say, how can this happen to me? And so my prayer for you this morning is that Christ would reveal himself to you. And as I was asking the Lord this morning, what the prayer teams might pray for those of you who would want to linger and pray for a while. This is what I wrote down. What are you unwilling to write loss over in your life? What's the hardest thing this morning to write loss over? And it may be that the Lord would put it in your heart to just linger and, and ask the prayer teams, would you just pray that God would give me the grace to let this go? He might give it back to you. If it's good for you, he might take it. If that's good for you, he'll always do what's good for you. Let's pray. Father, this is heavy business now to say before the living God that we are willing to write loss across the most precious people and the most precious accomplishments, the most precious things in our lives. But my prayer is that you would come now by your spirit as you have been and reveal your son in such irresistible and compelling ways that some are converted from darkness to light to give their lives over to Christ for the first time. And others who have known him and have been finding it difficult to let go would in fact be able to write loss over the world and everything good and bad in it that they might gain Christ. In his name I pray.